This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, May 18th, 2023 edition. I am Justin Klein, and I'm excited to welcome back Luke Guerrero. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, uh, today's podcast and radio program is really about you as the listener, as the investor, to help you prioritize the facts that we have before us, uh, not the emotions that you feel when you see price movements and headlines. Uh, It's really about uh, understanding the market dynamics that are in play and how that affects your portfolio, your risk, and ultimately your strategy in order for you to reach reach the goals that you have. Not the goals that your cousin has or your friend has or your neighbor has, the, f- the goals that you have and the risk tolerance levels that you have. So it's about understanding broad principles and then applying those principles for you and your particular situation. So our goal uh, is to answer your questions in a straight and unbiased way, no hidden agenda, and looking through the windshield, not the rear view mirror. Uh, this is about what is going to happen over the next six, nine, 12 months and beyond, okay? Now you can call right now and ask your question. Your participation is vital to this show. And the number is always 888-99-CHART. Whether you're listening after hours on the podcast or maybe you're listening during the live stream, four to five Pacific time, the same number is always 888-99-CHART. Now my focus point today looks into the story behind this headline, oil price dip ignores burgeoning Chinese demand and imminent supply crunch. So that the International Energy Agency warned that the price on the screen that you're seeing and that oil traders are seeing uh, is diverging from the true fundamentals of the supply and demand dynamics, especially into the back half of the year. So we're gonna look at that story. I think that'll be certainly very interesting to follow. Also, Buybacks, buybacks continue to surge, and you'll uh, you might be shocked to know that it's approaching the amount that companies are buying back uh, shares is approaching the total amount of payouts in dividends that they're paying as well. So we're going to look at that story. Also, there's a shift in how government student loan payouts are being decided. And this is a long-awaited Biden administration proposal. And we're going to look at the details of that. And then lastly, home price. Home prices fell 3.4% last month from the previous month. So we're going to look at that data and parse out what that means for the broader housing market. So those are on the docket for us to discuss today, as well as your voice bank questions. One is on growth versus value. And then Roche Holdings and an iTunes review question. So we have a full docket on today's podcast. And of course, your live calls at 888 chart 
And speaking of live calls, let's go to our first live caller, Don in or Orinda. He wants to talk about Apple and options. Yes, yes. Um, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, when Apple hits $185, I'm going to be selling 100 shares, period. So I'm looking at getting Why is a few that? extra dollars and looking uh, because of my portfolio. It just gets way too big. Got it. And okay. You re, you want to rebalance. 185. Exactly. Okay. Take some profit. I've yep. owned Apple since the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's done very well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, anyway, so I'm looking at uh, uh, selling covered call. I mm-hmm. uh, like to get a few extra dollars. So I'm looking at selling the color covered call for December. Okay. You know, I can get a, a t- over $10 for that. Mm-hmm. Let's say next week, Apple hits 185 mm-hmm. At that time, I, I've collected my premium, of course, initially. And then at that time, that's really just a simple transaction. I'm just simply selling my shares to somebody, and they're buying it. It takes it off of, uh, of my inventory, as it were, and gives it to them. It, Am I missing something, or should, should, is this a good idea? I think it's a great idea. It's a good way to kind of trim your position in Apple. Okay. Uh, obviously, you still have exposure to the downside, right? If Apple has a very large pullback, you're saying it. What was the number? One eighty-five, one ninety. What was it? One one eighty-five. Yeah, okay. and I've had Apple forever, so yes, if it goes down, it'll come back up. Yeah. and it may not make one eighty-five this year. I understand that. Uh-huh. But my statement is, when yeah. it does, I'm going to sell it. Okay. So you want to sell, you said the December or the January calls? Well, no, de- December. So, so okay. it's, it's this year. Okay. So I would. is this in a taxable account or non-taxable account? Yeah, taxable. Okay. So taxable, you might want to think about, do you want to take that gain this year or next year? Maybe why not push it out to January if that potentially could you know, be something uh, where you take that next year. Uh, I, I don't think that's a bad idea to, to hedge on the downside. But once again, it doesn't hedge you completely, right? So let's say it gets to 185, you sell a call uh, at 185, you get that $10, $11 per share. Uh, but if Apple goes all the way down to maybe 140, right, you're only hedged $10, uh, $10 on the downside. So you're not completely taking it off the table. You're still exposed to potential downside of Apple. Okay. Um, Excuse me. Don't don't they take uh, take uh, possession of the shares? No. no. So they're they would only take possession if upon expiration the Apple is trading above that strike price, meaning it's in the money. Then on that expiration date, then you would be selling your shares of Apple at that strike price, 185. So no, selling a call does not change your ownership of Apple. You are just short the call option, okay? And it does hedge you some on the downside, right? So if it's at 175 now, you sell a 185 call, you're not losing any money on that 100, uh, that 100 shares until Apple gets below 165, right? So it still gives you that upside to 185. You're always keeping the $10 per share. So you would effectively sell it for 185 plus the $10 because that's what you got for the premium. That's how you want to think about it. But that only happens at expiration if it gets called away from you. The, the actual 
changing of hands only happens uh, upon that date. And that's why I say if you're going to sell that call option, you might want to do it in December or sorry, for January to push off that capital gains that you're going to take on that 100 shares of Apple into next year. Or maybe you do want to take it this year. You have to think about that from a tax perspective. Um, but no, the change of hands only happens on expiration. Make sense? Thank you. No problem. Thanks for the call. What do you think about that, Luke, as a, as a way to, if you plan to trim your holdings at that price anyway, you know, selling a call option like that? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think first and foremost, uh, from what the caller was saying, it's, it's evident that he is aware of the risks of being too highly concentrated if he's already planning to rebalance. And in the meantime, using options to hedge some of that downside and get some income is, is an excellent, excellent way to manage your portfolio. Yeah, and, and you may never get to 185. Exactly. Uh, you know, you might think it will, but you know, a lot of times when you, where you think it's gonna go is not exactly where it does go. So being able to hedge that a little bit uh, and uh, collect some premiums, uh, I think that's a, a good way to go. Now we're going into a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank, or if you're listening via live stream or an AM 1220 in the Bay Area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. Here. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 CHART. stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. 8899 chart, 8899 That's how you get through and ask your question on today's show. And let's take a look at the market today. It was a pretty strong up day. You had really growth outperforming today. Large cap growth up 1.72%, uh, one of the, the better days on the year in relation to the rest of the market. The broad market was up right about 1%. Small caps up about 0.82%. Luke, did anything uh, in today's market stand out to you? Yeah, tech and tech and com was really up today. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of the market movement today was on the back of Speaker McCarthy sounding optimistic that we could have a debt ceiling deal as early as Sunday. Um, on the Treasury side, we saw that the two-year yield is up nearly thirty basis points this week. 
So higher expectation of another Fed rate hike, which you would think would be negative for markets, right? You'd think so. But I think uh, if you do it in degrees of what's most important to markets right now, I think getting a debt ceiling deal is, is far more important than the, uh, the potential for the Fed to, to, to hike rates down the road again. Yeah. And wasn't there also some ruling in regards to Twitter and its, uh, its liability for what was the ISIS attacks? Yeah, there was a case in front of the court which was surrounding around something called Section 230, which was a liability shield on big tech companies, essentially saying, uh, if you are a bookstore and you sell a book, the bookstore is not going to be liable for what is in those books. But if you're a uh, newspaper and you're printing stories, a newspaper is editorializing and therefore is going to be responsible. So the question was surrounding whether Twitter would be responsible for some of its content surrounding an attack by ISIS. It becomes a complicated question because back in the day, it's gone from message boards to what it is today, which is tech companies having algorithms. So yeah. it, was, it was a complex question, and they found it in favor of Twitter today and said that they didn't have any liability. Yeah, so that probably spread to the Facebooks and Googles of the world as well. And so I think that was, I think that was the real driver of why uh, the large cap growth was up so much today. Let's go to Alan and Temecula. He wants to talk about different investment types. Hi, Justin. Uh, one time on a podcast, you mentioned a... Um, a type of uh, corporate formation that's more trouble than it's worth to invest in simply because of all the uh, tax forms you have to do. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what that was? And, and is it an LP, limited partnership? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Limited partnerships, you get a K-1. There are some uh, complications there. And there are various types. The most common that you'll see in publicly traded markets would be master limited partnerships. Many of the uh, energy names that pay out big dividends, they are uh, MLPs, master limited partnerships, and they uh, create a K-1. But there are other types of limited partnerships that are traded as well, so you have to to look out for them. Uh, Is that what you were uh, speaking about? Well, I've already got S-U-N, Sun, and, and now I'm, I now I, I don't want to have to deal with the K-1. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's trouble. Well, it can be. It just depends on how much uh, work you want to do. Are you paying an accountant? Maybe a new accountant has to deal with it. You just hand us some papers that uh, are sent to you, and it's not a big deal. Uh, it also depends on your tax rate, uh, right? Because your tax, that income from that is taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. And if you're in a middle to low tax bracket, that's not as big a deal as if you're in the highest tax bracket, right? So your tax bracket is certainly a, a big factor uh, in that as well, because there's that, that tax-adjusted yield. You know, it might look like you're getting eight percent, and if you're in a fairly low tax bracket, you know, you caught twenty percent off of that. It's still, you know, in the six range. But if you're in a very high tax bracket, maybe the fifty percent tax bracket between federal and state, suddenly that eight percent turns into four percent. Okay, so um, that's that's something to think about as well. But you're right; uh, it can be a pain for for some people. Uh, they don't like it. Uh, it's a personal decision. Okay, thanks. No problem. Thanks for the call. Now we're heading into a break, and I welcome your finance and investment questions right now. No question is too simple or too complex. You set the agenda, so give Invest Talk a call at eight 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 ninety nine chart. Every Invest Talk podcast is made better by your questions. So don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, 888 99 Chart. Now, my focus 
point today. Looks in the story behind this question. Oil price dip ignores burgeoning Chinese demand and imminent supply crunch. And this is a report coming from the International Energy Agency. And this was on Tuesday. And they warned that prices, uh, prices that have reversed from the recent OPEC plus cut of about 1.6 million barrels, that, that retreat is kind of getting uh, pricing in too dire of uh, a supply demand picture. Uh, it, it seems to me, Luke, that the market is really focusing a lot on the slowing economy, which clearly based on uh, ISM data, uh, new data on, on um, in the jobs market, clearly the economy is is slowing. But do you think uh, maybe they're pushing too hard on, on that narrative? Or do you think that's justified with this recent drop? Well, I think the economy has one part to do with it. I think another issue for them is that you know, they're accounting for China being 60% of global demand growth in 2023, mm -hmm. which uh, anybody who is listening who's an investor knows that that's the opposite of diversification. You have 60% coming from one country, which could be the case, but there's certainly a lot of risk there as well. Yeah, so I think that, that, that is that growth in China doesn't really materialize. Exactly, which in the past it hasn't when mm -hmm. they've expected it to. So I think that's another reason for it. I think poor quarterly earnings last quarter is another reason for it. But I don't think that you know, going forward, energy companies are not going to do well because the price of oil is going to be down. I think the demand is going to be there. I think the supply, given what OPEC has been doing, is also not going to be there. And both of those things are going to drive oil prices up. Well, and I uh, believe what this next month, the Biden administration is going to stop their selling of the SPR. Yep. So that's another source of oil that's going to come off market. And the, the EAIA, is projecting that oil demand will increase another 200,000 barrels per day from its previous projection by the end of the year to reach a record 102 million barrels per day. And they expect that demand will eclipse supply by about 2 million barrels per day by the end of the year. And for the first time since early last year, and that's when oil was well above $100 per share. So you know what they're kind of saying is, Hey, you're going to have right, right now you have a small supply uh, surplus. You're going to quickly go into the back half of the year and find a supply, uh, a dearth of supply. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that you said that they've before they've been wrong about how much demand will come out of China. But clearly China's mobility data, air travel data is back to about 80% of pre-pandemic levels. So there's still room to grow. And obviously they've kind of abandoned the, the zero COVID policy. So, you know, it is hard to, to project, but the trends within China are saying that oil demand will uh, continue to rise. So I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see uh, what exactly happens in the back half of the year. And then next month, OPEC plus meets again. Do you think they'll cut again? I don't know. You know, Iraq, the representative from Iraq specifically said that at the next meeting um, on the 3rd or 4th of June, there would be no additional reductions and, and Iraq would not reduce further. But we'll see. Yeah, I think that will be uh, pretty interesting. Obviously, they want the OPEC names, especially Russia, they want prices to remain elevated. Uh, obviously, Russia wants prices to stay high so they can fund the war machine. And uh, so there's going to be pressure uh, there. So uh, I, I still think you're going to have a, a better price outlook in the back half of the year. It's just a matter for me of how strongly that Chinese demand comes on. Now, let's grab another voice bank question from 
Los Angeles that came in on 88.99 chart. Hey guys, this is Tyler from Los Angeles. I had a question for you about uh, dial returns. You know, I know uh, in 2022 and or 2023 and 2022, you guys have pushed uh, your value over growth. Uh, but just looking at some of the numbers year to date here, uh, large cap growth has outpaced large cap value by you know, over 16%. Uh, medium cap growth over value by 7.5%. And small cap growth over small cap value by almost 10% here. And I just want to get your commentary on this. You know, is this something that's just a first half of the year trend is not something that will stick in the long term? Or if you think that you know, growth could continue to outpace the value here, even though uh, interest rates are so high, which is obviously not conducive to uh, growth companies. But I appreciate your answer on the show. Thanks. Bye. Luke, what would your be your explanation be for the growth outperformance so far this year? I would say don't confuse short term signals with long term trends. Yeah, and that would be to, to expand on that. Uh, I would say if you are in the mind that interest rates are going to go back down dramatically, right? Interest rates have peaked uh, as of late, and I do think uh, rates are going to kind of trend modestly lower over the, the short to medium term. Uh, but remember, uh, rates peaked back in the fall of last year, and that's really when a growth started to outperform once again. Uh, and inflation continues to moderate, and, and I think that will continue for uh, most of the year. Uh, but if, if oh, it, it's, in, it's in our mind that inflation is going to be elevated over the, the longer term, right? Closer to three, four, 5% on average going forward over the next decade from a reversal of a lot of the factors that drove disinflation for a long period of time. Um, so now if you are of the mind that that is not going to be the case, right, we return to the pre-COVID environment where you have globalization powering through, uh, um, technology continuing to uh, create that disinflation uh, and uh, interest rates going much lower and staying very, very low, then, you know, I think that that will, uh, the growth will continue not to perform, but we're in the mind that that's not the case. Now we're heading into a break. So give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. On the next Invest Talk, the story behind this question, what's the difference between risk tolerance and risk capacity? Aligning these concepts can help you make better portfolio decisions. That story tomorrow. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk review on iTunes, we'd like to get to their questions quickly. And Mike from Ohio says, will you give me your thoughts on H on Haynes, HBI. It's been beat up lately. I know it's cyclical and just cut out the dividend altogether in February, which hurt. Technicals don't look too hot on my end. Any chance the dividend gets brought back? I think this, I've been saying this for a while. To me, this is the classic, the classic, and it's been looked cheap for a, a long time, many years now, because it earnings peaked in 2017 at $1.93. This year, it's expected to make only 28 cents a share, just continuing to grind lower in earnings pretty much since that point. And I see this as the classic value trap. Everyone knows what Haynes Brands does. They make underwear. 
And the issue is, is that they're a melting ice cube. Uh, you know, the, the, they used to not have a lot of competition. There used to be a handful of underwear brands at your big box retailer. And now increasingly more people are buying their underwear online, either through boutique outlets or uh, just the millions of options that are on Amazon. And it killed the pricing power of Hanes. And so while their business is still profitable, it to me, it smacks as a, as a value trap. Luke, are you, are you in the same mind? Yeah, I'm on the same mind as you on this one. You know, I think people, I think people were a little uh, uh, jaded by companies like Amazon that for so long didn't make money and then became great, great companies to, to invest in. But in this situation, you have profitability tanking. You have valuations tanking with it. I just, I, I agree. This is this is the definition of a value trap. Yeah, operating margins continue to uh, to, to grind lower. Free cash flow, it's it's still pretty robust. Um, so, uh, oh, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong wrong one. I didn't type in the new symbol. Yeah, I can uh, tell you, free cash flow is not robust. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, free cash flow negative three hundred three million trailing twelve months, negative cash from operations of eighty three million, yeah. and market cap one point five billion, and an enterprise value of. Five billion it means that three and a half billion dollars of net debt on its balance sheet, and like you said, they just eliminated the dividend because they can't afford it. Short interest is at sixteen point four percent right now. So. Yeah, so it could be a short squeeze. Could be. Could be a reason to but buy. But sometimes it. the shorts are right. <laughs> sometimes the shorts are right, and I think they are as well. So uh, just because something down and it looks profitable and it looks cheap, uh, the number one thing I think the average investor misses is debt. Just because it it it's making money doesn't mean that it can afford that debt. If it has a hefty amount of debt, it can still be profitable in the near term, but have negative cash flow like this name and be subject to bankruptcy. And that's why they cut their dividend because they need to take any potential uh, profit that they have and power that back into uh, lowering their debt levels to avoid bankruptcy. But I think it's a bankruptcy candidate probably in the next five years, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely pass on Haynes Brands. Let's go to James in California looking at PCOXX. Hi, Justin. Um, yeah, I'm looking at PCOXX, money market fund. They say they make money by investing in uh, cash instruments short term. Uh, can you elaborate what that means and if their fees are reasonable? What are their fees? Well, this is a money market fund. So anybody out there, if you ever see a five-digit ticker that ends in two X's, that is a money market fund. So this is PCOXX. This is the Federated Hermes Prime Cash Obligations Fund. So that what they're investing is in is typically commercial paper or short-term government instruments. And so that, that's, that's what they're, they're, they're investing in to get that yield. And obviously yields uh, are, have been on the rise. Uh, do you see a, do you see a 20 uh, basis points, 20 basis points. Okay. Yeah. It looks like 90% of their investments are in uh, short term notes and repo trades, a repo trade being essentially you need to park your cash somewhere overnight. So you lend it to somebody overnight on some specific interest rate. It's how a lot of money market funds are making money. 
Yeah, and that's that's how they've done that uh, typically. So this is a a standard one. Do you think this is a, a great, a very good money market fund? Average, below average? Uh, most money market funds tend to tend to be similar, right? Because they're all doing the same thing in order to yeah. make that short term interest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's got forty billion in it, so certainly a lot of people think it's a pretty decent money market fund. You have a twenty basis points for a money market fund? Heck, it's t- it's kind of expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, it's, I think you probably find better. Uh, your the big question here is: Are you taking much risk with this name? Uh, you know, it's like you said, it's doing a lot of repo trades. There, it's not investing completely in treasuries, so there's some credit risk there. Do you think it's worth the credit risk to get a little bit more yield? Sorry, I'm taking a look at Vanguard's money market fund, which has half the expense ratio. But then again, yeah. it's also 30% in agencies, so. I mean, yeah. it does kind of make sense if you're taking on a little bit more risk for a little bit more yield, then you have to pay a little bit more. It's yeah, you know, a little more work, right, to, to do yeah. a little bit more credit analysis. Uh, James, I mean, what, what brought you upon this one? Why this one versus other money market funds? Um, I was, it was basically I was referred to a uh, wealth manager through one of my colleagues, and uh, she, was, she basically recommended this. She's with Morgan Stanley. A wealth advisor, um, and uh, not knowing or not researching into the others, um, I kind of uh, was going with this. So. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, let's see. No 12B1 fees. That's good. That's always worry is recommended by some sort of advisor if there's a 12B1 fee. Uh, there's not. So so that's good. You know, once again, it's fine. Uh, it's going to be very similar yield to a lot of the. Uh, other money market funds out there, you're going to take, uh, like Lou said, a little bit of credit risk to get a little bit more yield. Is it worth it? You know, frankly, probably I would say it's worth it. Um, but understand that there is some credit risk versus other money market funds that are strictly investing in treasuries. So you got to understand that 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 kind of wrinkle there. Um, but it, it's still very very safe. All right. Thanks so what for. What kind of organizations would need uh, uh, would need to borrow uh, for such a short term basis? Like one day to seven days. Luke? Companies. <laughs> Companies that are running on revolving credit. Um, so when I worked at Dimensional Fund Advisors, one of the things we would do with our cash is we would do tri-party repo trades with the Federal Reserve and with uh, other banks. So essentially, you're just lending your cash overnight for their operations, and they give it back to you after a certain date um, at a certain amount of time. Yeah, um, corporations, so banks, they have to manage balance sheets. Uh, and sometimes... That's just a very short-term, you know, needing of cash or vice versa, lending out cash. Um, so, yeah, it's a, there, there's all types of uh, types of businesses that that need uh, short-term lending, and obviously these money market funds are, are there to fill that need. Thanks for the call. Now let's pivot over to corporate uh, balance sheets in some way, and that would be buybacks. And what's interesting is that there's record level of share buybacks, and that's creating um, an environment of scrutiny for many of them. And the world's 1,200 biggest public companies collectively bought back a record $1.3 trillion of their own shares last year. Now, that's triple the level of a decade ago, and almost as much as they paid out to shareholders in dividends last year. And over last year, dividends have grown, sorry, last year, dividends grew 54% over that previous 10-year period. So 
both dividends and buybacks have grown dramatically, but obviously buybacks have grown a, a lot more. And oil companies were the sector with the largest amount of share buybacks last year, buying back about $135 billion of their own stock. That's four times the level of 2021. Luke, do you think the scrutiny on this activity is, is warranted? It can be. I, I personally have never known how I felt about buybacks, right? If you have excess cash, enough that you can return capital to investors, I think it probably makes more sense to increase your dividend in a sustainable way long term. I think that's a better signal to the market. The problem that a lot of people have with buybacks is that a lot of short-term incentives of managers is to keep st stock prices elevated. Also, buying back shares can juice earnings around earnings season. Um, but certainly, I also don't support a company keeping capital that it's not using. So if it if it sees a buyback as the best way to, uh, you know, uh, return capital to investors, then then all then so be it. Yeah, I mean, the scrutiny I think around it is that they could be using that money to invest in the business and then hire more workers, for example, or just uh, support the local economy, right? If you're a US-based company and you're investing in uh, building out a new factory or something, that's obviously going to uh, create a, more business for those that are supporting that activity. Um, so that's, that's one thing I think uh, the politicians would like to see that helps, uh, helps the economy in general. Um, but also, you know, I, for me, the biggest, the biggest scrutiny that makes sense is that when times are tough, right? Think of COVID and I use Boeing as a perfect example. For years, Boeing had leveraged up its balance sheet in order to buy back shares and boost uh, earnings per share. And that pushed the stock price up dramatically. But what happened during COVID is suddenly they were on the verge of bankruptcy because they couldn't support uh, the, the debt that they had built up over that time. Uh, and they got a bailout from government. And when in fact, what they could have done is just had a more sound balance sheet and wouldn't have to deal with uh, a potential bankruptcy. Um, that's to me where the scrutiny really lies. But how do you really address that? Yeah, I think, you know, not only that, I think in a, in a more general sense, people are just upset because they're, up until this year, there was no requirement to disclose how many shares you purchased and what price you paid, which is something that publicly you know, you can see what an investor pays for a share. It's all mm -hmm. it's all on a ticker tape, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not anymore, but it used to be. But it's mm -hmm. essentially on a figurative ticker tape. I think that's where a lot of the scrutiny lies. And and at a bare minimum, if you say you're doing something that's best for investors, you should probably tell them what you paid and how many there were. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest upside for investors is that flexibility to go out there and buy shares, buy your own shares back at good prices. Typically, though, most companies don't buy their shares back at good prices. They, you know, when times are good, earnings are up, the yeah. price of the stock is up, it's trading at, you know, a 20, 25, maybe 30 times for looking earnings. And it, their stock's expensive, but they have a bunch of cash in the balance sheet. So they're just using that to uh, buy back shares when in reality, they should probably hunker down for the next recession and then buy back shares when, when stocks are down, stock is down and, you know, earnings are down instead of laying off workers. So I think that's where how do you how do you not have this blanket uh, uh, this blanket application of, for example, the buyback tax that was uh, took took a uh, it started in January, right? Uh, that's proposed to quadruple. Um, you know, it's kind of a blanket thing where you know Apple. I think Apple has such a good, strong business that 
you know, buying back shares is probably a smart thing for them to do. And even in a bad economy, I don't think they're going to lay off a ton of workers. Uh, whereas, you know, another company, like we, like I said, they might have a very leveraged balance sheet. And many of them did over the past decade, right? Borrowing at 2 3 4% and buying back shares, that made a lot of sense. And it manufactured good earnings for those executives who also have stock options. And they're doing it simply because they want to get that price up as opposed to reinvesting in the business for long-term value creation. And maybe, um, maybe how do you, how do you kind of, how do you, how do you, um, how do you balance those two uh, types of businesses in, in this regulation? You think? I don't think you do it through regulation. I think you do it through corporate governance. I think you do it through shareholders and demanding boards have independent directors, more independent directors, and those boards who represent those shareholders demand that long-term incentives are aligned with manager incentives. Because, like I said before, buybacks can be a good thing. They can be a way to return capital. Mm -hmm. um, and you know maybe you don't want to raise your dividend one year and then cut it the next year and make the market think you're fledgling. But they can also be a tool for just helping out short-term incentives of managers. So until you align the manager's incentives with what's best for long-term shareholders and best for the companies, um, I don't think regulation is going to have any sort of one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's got to be something that has to do with debt in, in, in looking at this uh, this regulation, because if you have no debt in your balance sheet, why does the government care whether you're buying back shares or not, right? They don't need to bail you out in a bad economy. So you should be able to do anything you want with that. So it's pretty interesting to see, uh, these buybacks continue to power higher. Um, and it'll be also be interesting to see if this buybacks tax continues to increase, will it quadruple and does, will that have an impact on uh, the broader buyback uh, habit. Now, Goldman Sachs forecasts that spending on buybacks by U.S. companies will drop 15% this year to about $808 billion, mainly because cash holdings are falling because of lower, uh, lower earnings over the past four quarters uh, by companies and rising interest rates move that ability or, or uh, the, the numbers uh, don't make as much sense when you're borrowing now at 7 8% as opposed to three or 4%, you know, five years ago. So I think that's a big reason why uh, buybacks are dropping. All right. Well, CPs and I have been telling you for a while that we are in a new market environment, new cycle of how markets are operating. We talked about the uh, that call earlier. Yeah, we're getting that counter trend rallying growth versus value. But if you're in the mind that, you know, deglobalization is here, inflation is here, then a new, this is a new environment for you. And understanding how to navigate that will take a, a different mindset. So uh, I want to remind you that you can reach out for a free portfolio review assessment via telephone or GoToMeeting. And you can set that up over on investtalk.com. Just click on the portfolio review button and fill that out. And we will get back to you sooner. And the sooner we get in touch, the sooner we can help get your portfolio optimized. Now we're moving into our final break. So if you're going to call, you want to do that right now on a best talk at 888 chart One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors. And I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. 
Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. We're going to go to Alberto in San Jose. He wants to talk about MPW, Medical Properties Trust. Yes, listen, thank you for taking my call. Um, I know this stock has gone down quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, and I know it's below $8. Uh, would this be a good entry point with all of the... All right, so I keep getting this call. I don't know if people aren't listening to all the shows. I've gotten a call on MPW, I would say, at least once a month for the past nine months and people are chasing this name. It keeps continuing to go lower and they're chasing the yield. And right now the yield is 14.9%. But as I've said many times before, 40%, nearly 40%. What is it? 38.6 Luke? Yeah. 38.6% of their revenue comes from two hospital uh, companies, private hospital companies that are on the verge of bankruptcy. Steward Healthcare and Prospect Medical Holdings, both recently hired uh, investment banks. Uh, Steward hired Guggenheim Securities and Prospect Medical uh, is advised by Houlihan Loki on refinancing efforts. And this is a, these are distressed debt uh, markets that they're operating in. And it means that these companies uh, are very likely go bankrupt, means that their tenants are, uh, they're, they're um, excuse me, their, uh, their leases in bankruptcy um, get discharged, right? Um, and this is potentially 40% of the revenue that can be lost from medical properties uh, trust. And that's what the market is pricing in. So people keep chasing this lower um, and they're not taking into account this. And this could, you think this could potentially bankrupt MPT, MPW, Luke? Risk, risk, risk. It's yeah. incredibly risky. Incredibly risky. So remember, when you're seeing 14.9% yield on something, it's there for a reason, right? There's some sort of major risk in the name. Now, your bet here would be that the market's overpriced the risk based on the drop, right? It's down from $25 per share to $7 on about $8 per share today. I think this is all priced in, Luke? I think there's a lot of class action lawsuits that are starting against this trust. Yeah, uh, just a big murky picture that definitely makes that that dividend yield very, very at risk. <laughs> I, I think that's certainly going to drop. How much? I don't know. Uh, does it create some sort of bankruptcy situation? That's certainly possible. They have ten billion, ten and a half billion dollars of long-term debt on a market cap of four point six billion. I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch this myself. When I think about this asset class, when I think about REITs, mm -hmm. uh, you should be hitting to get on base. You shouldn't be hitting for home runs. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, when you're when you're buying REITs with very high yields, that means you're taking on very high risk. And typically, that's that that's those aren't risks that uh, there's not good risk versus reward there, uh, because it's not like a name that's going to innovate in any way. These these REITs are not innovating, right? They are simply. Uh, investment or asset vehicles uh, to, to invest in. And real estate is, a, like you said, it's a, it's a single and double type of game, not a grand slam uh, hitting type of game. So I, I agree with you, Luke. I, I would definitely pass on Medical Properties Trust, as I've been saying for probably a year now. All right. Now let's talk a bit about, what was I going to hit on next? Um, where are we? 
For private colleges? Ah, there we go. No, we yes, there is new rules coming down the pipe, or proposal at least, that will hammer, I think, the for-profit education business. And what it's going to require is that graduates from these for-profit colleges have uh, no higher than 8% of their annual earnings as annual debt payments or 20% of their disposable income as debt payments and it will require that at least half of the graduates from these schools to have higher earnings than a typical high school graduate in their state in which they, uh, so like they've never pursued higher education. You think it's gonna work, Luke? I hope so because they need to bring the cost of college down. I've seen it nearly double where I went to school since I graduated. It's absolutely ridiculous. I think it's tripled since when I went to school. So, um, yeah, maybe quadruple actually. Now that I think about it, I think I started at twelve thousand. I think it's like over seventy for my my school. So, uh, it's it's pretty crazy. But uh, I think it's I think it's a good thing that they're putting these plans in place. But it won't apply until July of next year. So, uh, but definitely getting rid of the federal loans for schools that don't produce good outcomes for students, I think is a good thing. Now I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play and be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.